The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I get to welcome back the person who was really part of the inspiration for Masters in Business in the first place. Jack Schwager is the author of a new book, Unknown Market Wizards, the best traders you've never heard of. But this is the fifth, or maybe even if I include the little book, the sixth book of market wizards he's put out and when i was a, a a young stud on a trading desk back in the 1890s um schwager's book market wizards was was one of the first books i picked up uh, uh to learn a little bit about the idea of of markets and i found the book to be tremendously uh, formative to me not so much because it said buy this sell that but it was very revealing about discipline and risk management and mental models and containing your emotions. And that book really was one of the early books that sent me scampering off to learn more about behavioral economics and, and behavioral finance. Not so much because he was channeling um, Tversky and, and Kahneman or Thaler or any of those folks. But it was pretty clear from the successful traders he was interviewing that consensus was problematic, that examining your motivations was really important, that being aware of, of not only your own emotions but your own biases and some of your own cognitive deficits and blind spots was really, really important to individual traders. And, you know, I wouldn't call Market Wizards a, a behavioral finance book but it certainly touches on so many of the same issues. Uh, I find these books to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, as he's put them out over the years, the, the first book really was just a pure interview book, and, and it's evolved over, over all these decades. I think the first book was 86 or 89, and the most recent book was 2020. He not only gives you a summation at the end of each chapter, each trading wizard of, of their rules, and, and what guidelines you can pick up from them. But at the end, he summarizes it with something like 46 trading rules that you can learn from these people. And really, he's made it easier and easier to consume um, the information. I, I, I know what he's trying to do. He wants to educate people. For me, as a young guy on a trading desk, I found it really helpful to sort of that journey of, of learning what I was doing wrong and why in order to get better was was really helpful. Um, but I don't think people have the patience for that these days. I found the book to be really intriguing, and I think you will also. And if you haven't read the first one or the second or third or fourth, but go back and read that first Trading Wizards book. It's really quite astonishing and has held up over time. You could read it today, and it looks like it came out last month. So with no further ado, my conversation with Jack Schwager. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. 
My special guest this week is Jack Schwager. He has written five books on market wizards. And in fact, I found his first book, I think it was the 1989 Market Wizards book, to be enormously useful in my first job as a trader on Wall Street. He is also the founder of Funseeder, a platform designed to match undiscovered trading talent with capital worldwide. His most recent book is Unknown Market Wizards, the best traders you've never heard of. Jack Schwager, welcome back to Bloomberg. Hey, good to speak with you again, Barry. Same, same. Uh, it's It's been too long. Let, let's Let's start out talking about your first Market Wizards book, which I've told you before, not only was it enormously influential to me when I was a trader, but it was part of the motivation for this master's in business format of talking to people who've achieved a level of accomplishment and excellence, which leads me just to my first question. What what made you decide to write that first Market Wizards book? Yeah, so I had the idea actually for several years. At the time, I was a future director of a futures research department, which is kind of a full-time job on its own. To do a book, you really have to do like commit to nights and weekends. I had I had done a, a book before the you know complete guide to the futures market, which was like a 750 page tome, and I didn't want to do that anything felt like that again. But I wanted I had this idea that gee, wouldn't it be fun to go? And I knew some great traders. I said. Wouldn't it be fun to just kind of do that as the theme of the book? But it was just a matter of time. And then I got invited by uh, to a lunch by some other publisher who was familiar with the analytical book I wrote. And he wanted me to do a bunch of analytical books. And I said, no, no interest. But you know, I've been thinking of this. And they said, okay, why don't you do that? And so that was the catalyst. And I, I guess I just needed a little push to, to get going because I thought it was a good idea. So, so this is now over three decades that you've been sitting down with traders talking to them about their process, their methodology, and where they've gone wrong and where they've achieved success, I can't help but notice that the world of the 2020s, at least the trading world, is so very different than the trading world of the 1980s. How does that impact the the sort of conversations you have, and how does that affect the methodologies of these different types of traders? Yeah, so, you know, that's a good point. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's been uh, you know, enormous, you know, really enormous changes, as, as you all know. You've been in the business a while as well. Uh, but, you know, from the time I did the original Market Wizards book, which was the late 80s, and talking to people at that point about their careers really going back to late 60s, 70s, and into the 80s. But to that period of their, you know, you know their their trading history, you know, it's pre, pre-computer, you know, pre-PCs, you know, uh, uh, of course, we had uh, in futures, and we're basically dealing with pits now, electronic trading. Uh, but the, the big change is, is this computerization element. And uh, we went from a world where, they, where we didn't have PCs to where not only everybody has a PC, which is quite powerful and, and there's a tremendous amount of data, but you're also dealing now, actually for decades, where you have firms who have taken quantification to the extreme might have 100 PhDs in math and physics and so forth, uh, you know, trying to, to work on the markets uh, yeah, from, from, from that angle. So, so the, that's been, I think, the, the really big change, plus the electronic trading, the switch from, from pits to electronic trading. So, um, so how does that change? You know, oddly enough, 
for since I end up interviewing mostly discretionary traders, and we can talk why that's true as a separate tangent if you want, but that tends to be the reality. I mean, there are some systematic, but they're mostly discretionary. Um, turns out that uh, for the most part, a lot of approaches really still fall into the, to the same categories, and there's still a place for the individual discretionary trader. And uh, and I, I would say the biggest surprise I had doing this this last book, uh, Unknown Market Wizards, was I, I didn't expect to find people with track records like those in the, in the first book, some of the you know, people like the Coveners and the Jones and so forth. And to my amazement, I, I found people, you know, because, and, be, and I say that because of this great quantification and all this competition, you know, uh, that now exists. And to my surprise, I, I found people whose records were every bit as good, if not maybe as good as any I've ever found. So that was my surprise. And it basically speaks uh, as evidence that somehow, despite these enormous changes, uh, it's still possible for the individual trader to, to, to has talent and has a specific methodology that really works to do enormously well. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of the specific traders and some of the eye-popping um, track records that they've amassed later. But you, you mentioned um, Jones, Paul Tudor Jones. Of all the people I recall from the first book or, or one of the early books, he seems to be the lone standout who continues to be active, who continues to trade, and continues to make money. I mean, he was very early to Bitcoin, and, and I believe he's still a holder, you know, 20,000% later. Um, what makes huh. Jones stand out and be so different from his peers? He's he's much more open-minded than, I don't know, you, you can you can compare him to Druckenmiller or Adalia, or uh, he seems to be... A thirty-something, not a sixty-something. Well, the thing that that struck me about Jones that was different, I guess, is yeah. You know, I want to say you know, I was about to say less cerebral, but that's not really fair. I mean, I'm sure he's quite cerebral, but he is. He was much more um, sort of active and and um, yeah. You know, somebody like a like a Druckenmiller, I didn't see him trade. I spent the day with him, but you know, I kind of picture him, you know, more thoughtfully going through and deciding on trades and putting trade in. But but you know Paul, I remember sitting in his office and he you know screamed you know while we're doing the interview screaming orders left and right. This is the day where there were you know phones down for the pits and you know so he's he's, he's doing these orders he's looking at the screens he's, he's just very almost manic in the way he trades. So um, I had that that almost physical image of him you know trading more so than anybody I, I guess I, that I ever interviewed. Uh, that's one difference and uh, there are certain things I still remember about that interview. His this kind of insistence that you know every day's you, you start with a blank slate. So just because he has a position doesn't mean that that position is still something to be held. So yeah, he talked about wanting to evaluate every position. Well, I have this. Would I would I still want? Do I still want it today? You know that type of thing. So this 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 constant renewing of his analysis and assessment of the market. And I think particularly very much attuned, I think to to market action. In a very visceral way, so I guess those are some of the ways I, at least from my memory of that interview, that I, that he struck me as being a bit different. So, so let's stick with that first book. Uh, I mean, the the list of people you got to sit down with you for a day is pretty, 
Impressive. You mentioned Bruce Kovner. We were just talking about Paul Tudor-Jones, Richard Dennis, Ed Sequoida, uh, Marty Schwartz, Tom Baldwin, Michael Steinhardt, um, Druckenmiller. I mean, th- that's some yeah. murderer's row of, of fund managers and traders. Yeah, it was. And I was lucky to... I guess I didn't even realize how lucky I was because just about everybody I asked agreed. Now, I had some edge there because I knew some traders uh, personally, like Michael well, Michael Marcus, who's, who's actually a chapter one in that book, uh, is not somebody who would have been known were it not for the book, but he, he is one of the greats. And uh, uh, he, you know, so I knew him personally. You know, we were, we were friends. Uh, I actually took his... My first job on Wall Street was vacated by Michael. <laughs> he was cleaning out his desk when I came in my first day. We talked a little bit. He was going, in quotes, off to become a trader <laughs> and uh, you know, leaving his analyst job, and I took his analyst job. But he, he was in New York for a few years before he went out to, to Malibu and, and, you know, and you know, moved permanently there. Uh, but um, while I was in New York, we used to get together for lunches every couple of weeks, so we had a relationship. Uh, so he agreed to do it with, uh, not easily, he's a very shy guy, so it took a bit of convincing, and I had a mutual friend kind of push a little bit. But, you know, then he, he felt satisfied with with our interview after I'd spent a day or two there at his house. That was the one that I did, actually, when he was out, out in California. And um, he said, you know, you should work. Then he Okay, you know, he said you should interview Sakota. I never heard Sakota, but apparently Sakota was his mentor and somebody who he considered the best trader that he knew. And so he set that up, and then I flew out to interview Sakota. Kovner I knew because Michael had hired Kovner, and so I met him through Michael, and I had actually worked because of Michael. He hired me to be an analyst from, you know, remotely while all these commodities caught making all that money. And, uh, and so, you know, I, so there, there were these, I had a bit of a jump because I knew some of these traders and then huh. some of them recommended other traders, you know. Interesting. Really interesting. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. So, so last question on, on the early book. Some of, some of these guys have been trading for decades, and the risk that you run into uh, relates to what one of my colleagues described as the, the paradox of experts – People who are experts have their expertise in the way the world used to be in an earlier version of the world that doesn't exist. When you look around at, at these traders who've been at it for a long time, do they have a, a difficulty in adapting to the new world? I notice most of the guys you interviewed for the newest book are fairly young. Yeah. Um, so, well, of course, you know, if you go back to the original book, uh, you know, a lot, a lot, most of them, yeah, you know, at least ones I know continued continued on for for decades. Uh, you know, like the Kupners and and the Druckenmillers and so forth, and, and it you know did quite well. And Jones, et cetera. Um, in the case of you know, but I can think of an exception. Somebody like like Richard Dennis, who was who had won a 
the most incredible stories ever, you know, turning literally a sub $1,000 stake when he was trading the Mid-Am exchange, these MIDI contracts, and at some point uh, amassing a couple hundred million dollars. That's got to be one of the great multiplication feats of all time. But, but in yeah, you know, subsequently, uh, in the years after our interview, uh, had a had, had some, some, uh, had problems and, and never can, you know, besides not continuing, I think had net losses probably. So, um, not everybody, you know, not everybody, uh, necessarily, uh, continued forever. Um, but, but I think the majority, you know, continued, continued to adapt to markets. And, and in Dennis's case, I think it may be an issue of, uh, of the markets, I think did change. Um, trend following back, you know, in Dennis's heyday, which I would say were late '60s through late '80s, those were kind of glory days for for trend following. You, you had had a couple of things working together. First, because it was before technical analysis became so popular. Right. It was before most of that period was before a lot of the computerization. So uh, people who you were early on on trend following, kind of didn't have a lot of competition. And also you had the inflationary 70s and you had some giant trends in futures and currencies and so forth. So the, the times were very good. When the times became more difficult uh, or, and many more people, yeah, it was just a tremendous amount of tremendous increase in the number of people using these the, those type of approaches. Uh, the approach naturally degraded. So I think it, that was the issue there, and and, uh, and could explain why somebody like Dennis didn't continue the way he did, while some of these more discretionary traders, like uh-huh. Covenor and Jones, did. Uh huh. I, I, my big takeaway from the the early Dennis chapter was all about training traders the way they raised turtles on farms in Singapore. That that concept that hey, you could teach anybody how to trade if they're disciplined and will follow these sets of rules. Uh, I was I was really impressed with that. And that was, I don't know, 25 years ago. Uh, do you think someone like a, a, a modern version of Richard Dennis could still train traders the way he did? I, I have some skepticism there. Uh, and, and that's developed over the years. I, I kind of, the trouble is, you, you, you train somebody, the person you're training has to be kind of adaptable and amenable and be a good fit for whatever the methodology you're training. And what, my perspective is that to be successful, the method you use, is, it's not a matter of being trained by somebody. You have to, it has to be a method that's compatible with who you are and how you think and what's comfortable. So if you're, you know, you're somebody who, uh, let's say, doesn't feel comfortable delegating decisions to a systematic approach, Somebody can teach you a system, but it's going to be very difficult for you to follow because you're always going to want to be second-guessing it or, or jumping the gun or not taking signals. So it has to be compatible with with, with what's what works for you, and, and I think that's the problem. I don't think you necessarily can train everybody. Now, at the time that Dennis did it, you had trend following being a very effective methodology, so if people follow the rules, they could be successful. But I think that's more the exception than the rule. So you can, you certainly can learn from a mentor if the mentor is compatible with with the methodology that fits who you are. Makes a lot of sense, Jack. I, I was kind of struck by this book, and I'm curious, how did you go about it? Was it was it different 
um, versus your prior wizard books? Did did your methodology change, or did your interview process change, or was it, you know, you have a a, a process and you stuck to it? Yeah, no, I've had um, I've had the same methodology from the from the first market wizards book. So, um, uh, and it works. So there's no. If something works, you know, no reason to change it. So my process, first of all, the actual, as far as the actual uh, you know, interviews and, and turning it into a text, uh, when I do the interview, and this is kind of important, uh, is and I'm sure you could relate to this very well, Barry. Um, I I try I, I do what you do really, which I, which I sense you do, is have a conversation. Uh, so I don't go in with a list of questions and. You know, I've been interviewed by people, and they, you can tell they have a list of questions. And no matter what you answer, you know, there's no follow-through, and it you know, goes right. to the next question, right? And it sounds very stiff and boring, and it is. So um, what I try to do in these things is really just literally have a conversation. And it, there are times there have been interviews where I literally, it could, be, it could be two hours before I get the first thing that's of any value. Now, you don't have that luxury, but I do because I'm doing a book. Not a live interview, right? Um, but but that's that's so that's very important. And and I I do have like a list of questions that I know I want to make sure I hit those topics. And after I spend any number of hours, which could be which could be as little as a few hours in, in a short interview to to as much as a day or more, um, then I'll just check the list and see if I missed anything. But so that's one important thing. And, and the other part of the process that doesn't change is just the way. The interviews are transformed into text, and uh, there, you know, obviously, I'm doing so much, so many hours. You know, you couldn't any a lot of these interviews could be a book long by themselves. But besides that, if I used everything, it would be deadly boring. So you're really what I'm really trying to do is basically extract out everything that has, is one of two things: one, it has something meaningful to say about trading, or two, it's interesting. You know. Uh, so it's one of those things. So and that's the material that that forms the chapter, and then and then you do fixing up of you know people, the way people speak doesn't translate well into right. into written text as you as you will know I'm sure, uh, and you may talk about the same topic in eight different places, and that's fine if you're talking, but it's not fine if you're reading. Right. So you know, but that's that's the basic process. Uh, the difference in this book though was the focus and. Uh, in prior books, I guess they've been more more heavy in well-known professional traders, although not necessarily all the time. There's always been individual traders as well. And the, the most recent wizard book before this one, which is back in, I guess, 2012 or so, was Hedge Fund Market Wizards, which you can tell by the name, <laughs> is, you know, obviously not individual traders, right? They're, they're traders and organizations. So this this one was the exact was tended to be the exact opposite. It was literally to try to find those people who are trading in a home office, uh, doing extraordinarily well, and nobody knows they exist, nobody knows who they are, and and so that was the difference in this book. So one of the differences I suspected when I went into reading this book is all of the subjects of your prior books, all of the various traders. You know, you could do a search on them. You could you could read about them. There's newspaper articles in the days before Google, and certainly since search engines have been around, you can find a ton of stuff on each of the people um, that you interview. 
I got the sense from each of the chapters in this book that you had a bunch of, of arrows in your quiver, but you didn't know which ones you're going to use because you're kind of going in a little a little in the dark. Is, is that a fair assessment or am, am I <laughs> am, am I projecting too much? You're projecting too much because um, especially since I was doing these individual traders and, uh, you know, it's not like there's a public fund out there or something like that. Right. Uh, uh, so I, I had to really, really be careful this time about, well, I always have, but, but I, I had to get the track records and, um, and so I knew, you know, I, I knew what their track records were before I went in right and, uh, you know, like, I'll give you one example. One of these traders, I get an email and this is about a year before I did the book and, you know, saying something like, you know, uh, Hey, I'm, you know, this is my name and I, you know, I, and I turned a few thousand dollars into fifty million, whatever you know. So, yeah, your initial reaction would be sure, right? Um, but uh, yeah, I'm always I, I think if people, you know, people make claims, they know they're going to you know have to prove it. So, anyway, I said, look, I'm not planning another book at the time. I wasn't planning to do this book, and I said, but your story sounds very interesting, and if you can confirm it, you know, um, you know, uh, it would be sounds like it would be a really good fit. And uh, if I do another book, I'll get back in touch. Turns out that uh, nine months later, uh, I do decide to do to do another book, and I get back to him, and and so you know, I got he started trading back, I think around 2006, and literally got every monthly statement from it from 2006 forward. So uh, so I knew uh, while the story sounds unbelievable, I knew it was re- you know, I, you know I, actually there were, in this particular case there were there were Ameritrade accounts, and I have an Ameritrade account. So I, even though what the, what the account, you know, statements look like, so there was no, there was no surprise there. I, I kind of knew what it, uh, I knew what his track record was. I didn't know what he'd be like or what he'd have to say or anything like that. That's always the case, but I knew the, the track record was real. Huh. So, so let's jump into some of the details of of various traders, starting with the first chapter and and pretty much the only um, person you interviewed who uh, has a has been trading for for decades and that would be someone I follow on Twitter who I've always been intrigued by named Peter Brandt what what drew you to him as a trader and what makes him so unique yeah so as you said Peters has a long career he actually has his career is broken into two segments <laughs> um, he uh, and each one is like I, I forget the exact number of years but let's 11 let's years apart yeah you know, 11 years apart but each one each of the segments is, let's say, 16, 17 years. So he's got over 30 years of gift trading experience. He went cold. He stopped trading totally for 11 years in between because at the end of the first period, the fun had gone out of it, and he just he just decided he didn't want to do it anymore. And then out of the blue, 11 years later, decided to do it and had a had a second phase where he did very well. So so he has over three decades of you know of, of experience and, and so forth. Okay, that's that, that's that's part. That's that's the beginning. The thing that Peter and, and I should I should meant I should say that, that Peter actually is a friend, so uh, I, I knew him personally. Uh, one thing that always struck me about Peter was uh, he just had a lot of what I thought valuable things to say about the markets and trading. And I remember him being on on a on another podcast and listening to it, and the questions would be asked, and I would mentally answer them, and <laughs> 
you know, it was striking how similar his answers were. Huh. So it's not just bad. It's, you know, it's just, I just really related to the way he, he looked at, at markets and risk and had so many, so much good advice and just, just wisdom that, that, that I felt I wanted to capture. Now, Peter is, uh, you know, he's in his early seventies and, uh, I, I literally, and he was kind of a catalyst to do the book. Uh, at the time, he was in Colorado, as I am, and I thought, well, I'll save myself. You know, I knew, I knew if I didn't have a Mark Wizards book, I wanted that Peter in it. So he was going, he was going to be moving. I think, well, I might as well save myself a trip. I said, I might as well do his chapter now. Turns out, by the time I got around to, to doing it, he had moved, and then I, uh, so I ended up flying out, uh, you know, to uh, Arizona anyway. But the the thing about Peter just uh, just to capture. I wanted to capture his his market wisdom for posterity. It's probably the most straightforward way I can put it. And, and it's notable that several other wizards in the new book reference Brandt's approach to risk management. For, forget stock selection; they are just completely impressed with how disciplined he is and how he manages risk. First and foremost, the the stocks, the trades that are working out will take care of themselves, he says. It's ones that don't work out that, that require all your attention. Somebody else said something that really intrigued me. The, the chapter on Jason Shapiro, the contrarian, I love this quote. There aren't good traders you can make money on by doing what they're doing, but there are terrible traders you can make money on by doing the exact opposite of what they do. Tell us a little bit about Jason Shapiro. Yeah, so yeah, Jason is the the contrarian in the book, and uh, that's his nature. I mean, he if you meet him, um, he's just he has to be. I would think he has to be argumentative, but he always has to be on the other side. And he admits freely, like he he'll, if he goes to a party and and it's mostly liberals, he'll, he'll argue the conservative side. If it's mostly conservatives, he'll argue the liberal side. And he's fine doing that. And his premise is that there's no absolute black and white. There's truth on some truth on both sides, and and people who insist everything is you know one side or the other are just wrong. And he enjoys arguing it, but that his nature is always to be arguing and to be counter. So it'd be natural that he evolves into a trading methodology that that's that's contrarian, and uh, and that's what he literally does. He he uses the commitment of traders as primary source of trying to establish market sentiment, but also, you know, also watch, uh, you know, CNBC and shows like that to, to, for contrarian ideas. And in his career, he's come across people um, that uh, are just invariably wrong. And uh, in fact, he kind of picked the exact bottom of the, you know, the, the, uh, the pandemic uh, bottom in March, uh, because uh, he was on a sort of this call between some ex-colleagues and and this one guy who was always bullish on the market was bearish and and he was looking for the bottom anyway because of the sentiment that was they were seeing in, in the uh, uh, in the numbers and uh, that was a trigger for him to almost jump the gun just on that to start to establishing a position so uh, and he to be fair here. I don't want to make it sound like he's just, you know, kind of, ra- you know, ragging on people. He says basically, I mean, you first this part, and we did this chapter in pseudonyms. This chapter was done. The only chapter I can remember that I did in pseudonyms at his at his request, 
and people who read the chapter, it's quite obvious why <laughs> pseudonyms are used, uh, because it's not all very complimentary. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, so, uh, he, but he says, look, it's, it's not that this, you know, when I see, you know, let's call it Mr. X, I see myself, you know, through those years where I was losing, I see him making all the same mistakes. Right. And so it's because he recognizes something that he himself had done. He recognizes the mistakes that he had done that these people are falling prey to, which are which are emotional and 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 uh, not having the risk management and so forth. Um, he he can see himself, and he knows that that turned out, and he knows therefore that the opposite side is is. It's- the countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The way you should be. Right. That, that's a very fair way to describe it. When, when he is ragging on financial television or market consensus, he very specifically said, I see the errors I made early in my career. I recognize that consensus. And, and for people who are not familiar with the Commitment of Traders report, it shows the commercial hedgers' positions relative to the speculators. And historically, the commercial hedgers have a whole lot more insight than, than the, uh, the jobbers and the, and the speculators who are just taking a flyer um, and that's why he likes the the commitment to traders report. Is that a fair way to assess yeah. that? Yeah, that that's that's a good way to summarize it. Hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about mindset. Uh, I was impressed with the discussion with Richard Barg talking about things that most people don't think have anything to do with trading: state of flow, optimism, confidence, managing your emotions. Tell us a little bit about Barg. Yeah, Barnes is a quite interesting fellow. So, uh, actually, uh, grew up in a farm uh, in, in England. Um, sort of got this trading job as his first job, and he's, I guess, his approach. The thing that struck me about Barge was how how much he he weighed psychology into the whole into all of trading and everything he did, and he was very meticulous. So. Uh, for example, he, he he like would bring out a binder. He'd have like literally thousands of pages of just keeping kept keeping notes on everything. Like not just the trades he did and why he did them and how he did them, but what his emotions were. And you know, and he even has he even showed me a spreadsheet like a, I don't know forty fifty column spreadsheet. Where he has all these different types of emotions, and every day he will check if he was subject to any of those. And at the end of the week, he'll review it. And if, if there's too many checks in a certain column, he knows that's something he has to work on. So he's 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 all he's kind of combined an analysis uh, of his own psychology as an integral part of uh, of trading. And um, yeah, so uh, and and this this whole psychology thing not only comes up with Barge, but it comes up with a number of the other traders as well as being sort of highly critical to their approach. Someone like Sal talking about how, you know, he prepares for a trade mentally and getting in, you know, getting himself calm and, and getting totally focused. And, and um, Is that the just, former Marine you're referring to? 
No, no, Sal isn't the uh, Marine. That, that, uh, the Marine is John Netto. John Netto, uh, that's right. Sal, Sal's one of the other, yeah, Sal's one of the other UK traders. Uh, actually, he was the, who, who, who actually was uh, partially a mentor to, 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 to Barge because it turned out that three of the traders at one time worked at the same right. prop trading firm, so they, they knew each other. You know. Uh, so, so Sal and Netto both discussed doing something that I was kind of intrigued with and reminded me of some former traders I worked with who were in the military, which was envisioning the trade, envisioning what could go right, what could go wrong, not just working out a plan B and a plan C and all the contingencies, but imagining what your emotional state would be if something is going good or going bad and prepping yourself so that when those emotions bubble up, you can sort of shove them off to the side and remain objective and focused on the task at hand. It's a very military-trained methodology. Yeah, well, Neto, of course, is the Marine, but the one who probably most epitomized what you're describing is Sal, um, because he would literally, for and, and I should, we should explain his background, that his primary trading methodology is to look for special situations like a central bank announcement or something, some event, and do enormous preparation for that and, and think of every contingency. And know. So he would literally plan out what do we do under no matter what was said, how it was said, uh, and just just would have in his mind every possible fork in the road on that trade and be totally prepared. So uh, that was that, that is actually an essential part of the way he approach, approaches market. Um, huh. Really interesting. Yeah. When, when I was a newbie on a desk, I sat between these two monsters. One guy was a former Marine jungle combat instructor. The other guy was a former ranger. And uh-huh. after work, we would have these conversations about what it was like. Uh, P.S., you go to a bar with these guys, and I could be the biggest wise-ass I wanted. Nobody was – people would look at me, and then they'd look at these two monsters with me, and I would be <laughs> like, yeah, we're not going to get involved in that. But what I was – and these guys weren't just big and fit. They were really savvy and smart. And I recall hearing some of the Army Ranger prep discussions where you map out literally every step along the way. Here's where the helicopter is going to pick us up. Here's what happens if the chopper is late, if it doesn't ride, if this happens. Here's what happens when we're flying to the target. Here's what happens if we have to make an unscheduled landing. And they literally sort of, I guess the right word is war game, all the various scenarios that could happen, that might go wrong, that what what your plan B, C, D, E is. But what I was so taken by, and I sort of reminisced of it going through the book, is how they think about what is your emotional reaction going to be if you show up here and your gun uh, is jammed and it doesn't work? Or if whatever the task at hand, we're missing a piece. How do we improvise? Like the preparation for a mission and the prep of some of the traders in anticipation of a giant trade, very, very parallel. Yeah, and actually, we, you mentioned you know, the, the Marine in the book, Neto. His approach, we actually ended up spending years systematizing, you know, computerizing it. But but his approach is exactly that, sort of, let's say, reports could be coming out, kind of figuring where the probabilities are, where it might happen, you know, what if it falls in this range, what if it falls in this range, what if it falls in this range, and for every contingency, have having that, you know, like they systematize, so the computer will will know what to do 
no matter what which which of those things happen. And it is that anticipating all different types of scenarios as part of the trading plan. And and it does sound very much like what you're describing for your personal experience with these Army Rangers and Marines. And there's one other element of it. Uh, I should say, uh, Netto wasn't the first Marine. I, I think in the course of the Mark Wizard books, there's probably been, I think, about four Marines that I interviewed and, and ex-Marines. Uh, and it's, it's not an accident. And I think it's not just the planning, but I think it's the discipline. And, uh, uh, you know, because, because to be successful, you really need rigorous discipline. Uh, that's something that's inbred, innate uh, in ex-Marines generally. So Yeah, I'm going to tell you right now that, that they would all tell you the same thing. There's no such thing as an ex-Marine. Once a Marine, always a Marine. <laughs> Well, that's and, true, too. And, and that's that, true, too. I, yeah. I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if, if they said the same thing. And, and it really shows up in the description. I, I, I was flashing back to my days on the desk because that's the exact description. So let me ask you these three concepts that I, really struck me from the book. The first was know your edge. Tell us a little bit about why you have to know what your edge is. Yeah, because there's, there's two things you need. <laughs> Maybe oversimplifying it, but not really. There's really two things you need to be successful in trading. One, you need a methodology of an edge, and two, you need risk management. So, uh, how, and people sometimes go too far by saying, well, risk management is, is absolutely critical and tremendously important. But bottom line, if you don't have a methodology that has some edge, uh, there's no reason why you, sh- you should win. You know, it's just right. simple probability. So you do need to have some edge, and you need to obviously know what it is, meaning uh, you're, not, you're not shooting from the hip. You've got an approach. And and you've got to follow that approach, and and then presumably that approach has some edge, and and, it's, and you have to obviously know what it is. You can't you can't just sit at a front of your screen and say, oh, I think this is going up, I'll buy it. That's that's not a methodology. So essentially, that's it's as simple as that by, by knowing where your edge is, and it could be it could be it could be anything. It could be uh, you know in any realm. But it has to be something specific to your approach. And and let's stay with the idea of the methodology. You have to number two. You have to make sure your trading style and methodology fits your personality. Let Let's talk about that for a moment. Yeah. So that's that's what, uh, one of the things I kind of alluded to earlier. It, it's really everybody, I think, has a you know a natural affinity for certain types of ways of doing things, or when it comes to trading, for certain types of trading. And and whatever you do, it has to be compatible. If you're if you're impatient, it's not going to work to have to do a long term trading approach. If you're oriented to uh, to wanting to, if you believe everything has to have economic reasons, uh, and you're disdainful of, of things like charts, you know, trying to do charts is not going to necessarily be compatible. It doesn't mean those approaches don't work. It just means they they won't work for you. So. This it's a discovery process. You have to find you have to find what what fits what fits your, for yourself. For example, I started out trading based on fundamentals. Why? Because I had an economics degree, you know, and I and it was just natural to, to think in those terms. Um, but I discovered that hey, you know, fundamentals didn't work for me, and uh, I had problems, you know, doing the fundamental approach and combining with, with proper risk management. Which is a separate tangent, but but it, to me the the two were almost in conflict sometimes. 
But I found that technical analysis worked much more naturally risk, risk management. So I ended up evolving from somebody who started with purely fundamentals for trading and then ended up being somebody who, who just uses technicals for trading. So uh, you have to find what's compatible with, with your philosophy, what feels right, what you're comfortable. This is important. You have to use an approach that's comfortable for you to trade. So, uh, for example, at one point my, you know, back a number of decades, once I you know, had gone to technical analysis, I thought, gee, you know, I, I don't particularly like emotion trading. I'll go systematic. And for, for a while, I traded systematically. But I discovered that I just actually that was more that was more uncomfortable. I didn't have to make decisions, but I had to wait for the damn system to change signals, which I just didn't like. So uh, I felt uncomfortable relegating the ability to act and to cut losses to a system. So I eventually just went back to discretionary technical trading. And, uh, and, anyway, and, so it has to be something that you're comfortable with. Makes sense. And then the third one um, that I thought was kind of interesting is understanding the market narrative and recognizing the consensus. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that that come you know that that applies to certain traders. Not everybody necessarily, but um, for somebody like we talked about, somebody like a Shapiro, you know, understanding why you know you know how the market is thinking, why in this case, eventually going against it is integral to the approach. But, but so it really depends on the trader. But for some traders, that is how they they look at markets, and they need to they need to to know what the story. Neto is another one where that comes in. You you know he wants to understand. That's part of his approach. He wants to understand what what is the story that's driving the market, and uh, that understanding that is is critical to his being able to trade the markets. Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. Uh, let's talk about some of the people you interviewed in this book. Uh, I like the guy whose name is the Unicorn Sniper. His track record you alluded to earlier, up 337% for 13 years. And I want to clarify that. That's not a cumulative return. That was his annual return over 13 years. Before we get into what he does... You have to explain how you're verifying that those are real numbers, because those are just, you know, insane, yeah. well, insane sorts of returns. This is a guy who started out with a few thousand and turned it into fifty million. Oh no, that's Jeff Newman. That's, oh really? Uh, yeah, yeah. So this is somebody uh, yeah. else, the Unicorn Sniper. Unicorn Sniper is actually Sal. Oh, okay, gotcha. What I'm was? Sal, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about his track record. What did he start with and? What did 337% a year for 13 years compound into? Oh, well, so the thing about these percent returns is, is you have to keep in mind that they're not, they're not letting, he's not keeping the money in and compounding at 300%. He's pulling Otherwise, it out. He would get, yeah, he's pulling it out. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's always trading a few million dollars or whatever it is, and he keeps on pulling it out, you know, investing or whatever uh, in other things. So uh, you, I think he, he couldn't do, he couldn't get those type of returns if he were trying to, you know, if he was compounding the money. This doesn't so, scale up to bill. You couldn't trade hundreds of millions. Forget billions. No, no. This and, 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 and his approach essentially is is is, uh, is highly selective. Is picking certain events, preparing tremendously, uh, just being 
super expert on on that on those situations, and uh, that's why calls he's been, he 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 said people have described him as as, as unicorn sniper. The, the point being that <laughs> he looks for the rare event that provides tremendous opportunity with, with much less you know highly asymmetric, big, very big opportunity that can be realized without taking commensurate risk. You know, taking and, much smaller risk. And so I think while I, he, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's no, okay. So, so while while he may have these you know, really high returns per year and very high, very individual trades that make a lot of money, he cuts his losses very quickly, so he doesn't have really large losses. You can go through his record; you could probably find thirty days where he's made, you know, thirty percent or more. I mean, like a lot of days, he's made like these very large returns, but you won't find any days where he's had the reverse. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. And, and the the line that really stuck stuck out from uh, Amritsal, right? If, if I'm getting his name, yeah, right, Amritsal, yeah. It yeah. is ninety percent of the time the market is not providing any opportunities. I make ninety percent of my money the other ten percent of the time. That that's pretty astonishing. Talk about waiting for your pitch. Yeah, so that's that's it. That's critical, critical. Um, and a lot of people, a lot of people make that mistake, and and it, it relates to human nature is we're just not patient, right? So right. Uh, people don't want to, people can't can stand around, you know, a few months and not do hardly anything and then wait for that month. But but that's what Sal does. It, he, if it, there's no opportunity, I mean, he may trade a little bit, but the, but the trades where he takes these big positions on, they're isolated and they're not that many. And he makes most of his money, you know, probably less than a half a dozen trades a year. But he has the patience to wait for it. That's that's kind of the sniper thing, you know. Just you're waiting for the shot, and the unicorn is. It's not that. It's 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 rare. So that it, those two words really describe him extremely well. Hmm. And uh, it's difficult to do. People don't have the patience. And one of the points that are made, and I I forget if it was Sal or one of the other traders, but he makes the point that uh, trying to be consistent, and this is again very counterintuitive. But the point makes is that people who try to make try to make money every month for say you know a certain amount of money every month the same way he he, his, he says in his experience those traders will fail because they're the markets will not provide opportunities every month and if you're trying to if you're trying to make the same target every month uh, when the opportunities aren't there you're actually going to end up losing money not making money so. That's actually a negative, a negative trade, not a positive trade. Hmm. Quite, really, quite, quite interesting. Um, somebody who had a very different approach than a lot of other people was Chris Camillo. Um, yeah. Who, who specifically? I, I love this quote. My trading is dependent on my ability to identify meaningful off-radar information early. Information that's either not recognized or underappreciated 
by the investing public, very reminiscent of uh, the Peter Lynch methodology, as you point out in the book. Tell us a little bit about Chris. Yeah, so Chris, I mean, this is a truly kind of uh, almost remarkable. I'm going through a career which spans from the early 70s in the markets, and uh, through all those years, through those decades, I I just naturally assumed there You've got two general approaches. You're either, you're either, you know, using some sort of fundamental analysis, or you're using some sort of technical analysis, or you might be combining the two, like somebody who, like a cognitive does. Uh, but what else is there, right? And the amazing thing about Camillo was, turns out, here's a guy who's done phenomenal. I mean, he turned uh, eighty thousand into twenty million plus, and he's he did that, and he doesn't use fundamentals, and he doesn't use technical, and <laughs> People listening to this are probably scratching their head. Well, what do you mean? What else? What does he do? Well, he uses social media. And uh, he actually started out just by observing, as you say, uh, uh, Peter Lynch is the perfect example. Uh, he talks about as a kid that, um, uh, I think it was with the, the Arizona soda or whatever it was, uh, but he had the soda that he, that he liked and... Uh, he would go it was Snapple. He wanted to get Snapple, Snapple, Snapple and, and they consolidated okay. it. And here's this new company, Arizona Ice Tea. Yeah. So yeah. So he goes one day, and every day, he, on the weekends, he would go to auctions try to buy stuff that he could resell. And he was very, you know, like, like as a teenager, he was very entrepreneurial as well. Garage sales. So, stuff and like he would that, get yeah. somebody, yeah, he would get a, he would go to get a Snapple. I mean, that was the street. And one day he goes, and there's no, uh, you know, the, the Snapple columns were replaced by all these other things very old. And he asked the, the, the proprietor and he says, well, you know, that's, this is a new, this is a new brand of having more of this. And then he asked his brother, Hey, is there any way his brother was a stockbroker? Is there any way I could take advantage of this? You know, and his brother explained options then. And that was his first trade. So he was, uh, he was, uh, you know, he was a, he kind of naturally went to this Peter Lynch approach. And, uh, there's an interesting example. He talks about sort of, um, the Wendy's uh, pretzel bacon cheeseburger. I never yeah. even heard of this. That just cracked me up. Yeah, I didn't even. I don't either. But this is the type of stuff he did. He does. Uh, eventually, he ended up building a company, a computerized this whole approach. But he, so he would go to uh, one of these seasonal specials, the, the one you just mentioned, and he he, went, he would go to the, the managers at these stores and how are they selling and talk to customers. And he found this was the, and they were telling him this. This has been the most popular sandwich we ever had. And We've never seen anything like I, this before. It's just, yeah, and yeah, even though yeah. everybody else does a seasonal thing, this one really had track. It was that. It was Wendy's. It was Under Armour's new cold gear. Netflix, Stranger Things, National Beverage yeah, Stranger Corporation's things, uh, La Croix. Yeah, Tell so, us about some of those. Yeah, so Stranger Things is a good example. So, yeah, everybody knew it was a popular show. But by that point, he had kind of, he was using uh, primarily Twitter but as a social media, but and he had also like you know so he built a company to do all these tags and stuff like that, well, word tags, combination phrases to search for things that were coming up a lot. But in this particular show, what he noticed was not just that it was popular, but he had the data, so he would see that it stayed popular for a very very long time. And other big hits on Netflix, yeah, they were popular for a few weeks and then it sort of died down. But he could see that this chatter was like, that he had this data on, say, this Twitter chatter was staying at a super high level for a long time. And that told him this was different. And so he anticipated the earnings were going to be, you know, much better. 
And he was sort of, a, you know, he anticipated this before anything showed up uh, very early on. And it was basically just a matter of this uh, social media analysis. Huh. So, so this raises some really interesting questions because uh, Camilio learned from his Snapple put purchase, and that was a winning trade. But, but when you read through the chapters, it really seems that losing trades are far more instructive than, than winning trades. How, how important is failure as a feedback mechanism? Uh, extremely important. And that, that's a theme that comes up that comes up repeatedly in you know in every every market wizard book, and um, and, I, and I think the the one I would highlight the most because I think it's so core to his philosophy in the firm he built would be Ray Dalio, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Dalio's whole philosophy is is to learn from mistakes, and that's and 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 his whole you know bridge he imbued in Bridgewater with that philosophy and. And I, I, I think Dalio would himself say that his successes he, he would lie in his ability to, to learn from mistakes. And, and in this book, you have you have traders like we mentioned. We talked about Barge, you know, for example. So, uh, he, and he'll record every trade and you know whatever mistakes he's made and mistakes in trading, mistakes in emotional state, like trading when he's in a certain emotional state. So, so recognizing mistakes is really important. It's how you can improve as a trader is by being able to recognize the mistakes you make and to minimize, or ideally eliminate, but at least minimize repeating those mistakes in the, in the future. I mean, that is probably the most effective way anybody can improve as a trader. Hmm. Re- really quite interesting. Um, one of the things that comes up pretty consistently is when you're when you're having a, a losing trade, you're looking to do two things: conserve capital. But the thing that really struck me was how often people said, "I need to conserve my mental bandwidth." Tell us a little bit about how how a trader conserves mental bandwidth as opposed to either being distracted or just exhausting your bandwidth on on a losing trade. This is sort of you know, I. There are a number of trades, but Barge is a good example because he does this. Uh, if if it if he's something goes wrong or, or he gets he gets knocked off his equilibrium by the markets, he'll he'll just stop. He'll 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 take a breather. You know, he'll go away for the day, for a few days, whatever. Uh, he breaks that he breaks that cycle, um, and it's important not to let your um, Bad events in the you know in trade or negative negative outcomes in trading affect your your mental state, and so and Sal makes the same point. You 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 have you have to preserve your your you know, kind of mental solidity, and uh, you you don't want to get into this uh, cycle where you have a bad trade and and then another bad trade and you start getting negative on yourself. You don't want to let that that get out, out of hand. So you need to break that cycle uh, because being in the proper mental state is essential, at least discretionary trading, is essential to, to being able to trade effectively uh, as a discretionary trader. So uh, so it's not, just the, it's not just the loss, it's the impact of that loss uh, on, on other trades if you let it happen. And uh, that's, what, that's something people don't realize. It's just not 
when you take a loss and when you make a mistake, it's not just that trade, but if you if you're not careful, it can start affecting other trades, and uh, and and it can result in, in missing trades as well. So uh, that that that's a, that's something that that's come up thematically uh, in many interviews. Well, one of the traders referenced a quote that I think was French composer Claude Debussy, who said, "Music is the space between the notes," and that was their parallel for their trading approach. Tell us a little bit about the space between the notes. I, this is actually something that I that I used uh, that I thought of um, <laughs> when I in, in the case of one particular trader. And this is this is a trader. In, in hedge fund market wizards, and a fellow by the name of Kevin Bailey. Now he uh, he's a he calls himself a long short, you know, long short equity trader. Um, I, I kind of put a quotes around the short because uh, when I interviewed him, turns out he's never had more than a single digit short position. Right. So he's primarily long for a little bit of sprinkling of shorts. Uh, Kevin starts starts his hedge fund in October '99. Now, I don't know, but to me, October 99 is not the best time to start a hedge fund, which is going to be primarily long. So I, I interviewed him a decade later, um, a decade later, or maybe 12 years later. I think. So it's, uh, and at that point, yes, 12 years later. So it was at after point, the financial crisis. Yeah, it was after, yeah. So, 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 so daily basically trades through the bear market in 2000, 2002, and the financial crisis in 2008. You know, all the smoke clears by the time I interview him. He since he started his hedge fund and in October nine nine, so there was a, there was a, you know there was some there were six months where the market was still going up early on. But anyway, during that interim, it turns out the S and P was pretty much close to dead flat. You know, uh, his record cumulatively before fees. So we're just looking at the trading aspect of it. His 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 record cumulatively, I think, is up eight hundred and nine hundred percent. So wow. the question is, the question is, how does somebody cumulatively make eight hundred nine hundred percent? At the same time, the market's going sideways, and and yeah, so he in that chapter he 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 really is pretty specific and quite detailed in all the all the uh, he's a, he's a fundamental guy and he he talks about all the things he looks at and, and yeah, so he's a good stock picker. Yeah, that's certainly part of it, but really the essence of it is that um, when the market environment wasn't good, like two thousand two thousand two, uh, he actually during that three year period, even though he's mostly long. He trades very little, and he's actually up slightly for that period. In 2008, he, you know, when the market's you know down 50 percent, he's down like single digits. Uh, he's not trading that much. He recognizes the environment is bad. So essentially, his success can be attributed, to my mind, more by when he didn't trade than when he did trade, because he he had the right times not to trade, and that's why I use that quote that that, that reminded me of the Debussy quote that the that music is the space between the notes. And so to my mind, the analogy was, you know, good trading is the space between trades. Huh. Makes a lot of sense. You were a trader for a bit. Or I have to ask, are you still trading or you step back and more of an investor these days? Yeah, so I, I'm, I was never an investor. I mean, when I invest in any investment, I do is basically real estate, you know, right. not as a, just, you know, but that's kind of always, I've had a bias to just that being a safe place to to keep money. <laughs> you don't um, get a print every second, so that's the, the no, no, ticks no in but real it's just, <laughs> just, it just makes just makes intuitive sense to me, and and particularly in environments where the markets have had long runs and uh, and interest rates are near zero, it just seems like like a 
like the best place I can think of to keep money. Uh, so, you know, whatever. But anyway, uh, I, I should clarify that unlike the people I interview, I, I actually don't consider myself a trader. Uh, I, I consider myself a lot of things before I consider myself a trader. And, and trading for me is just a hobby. And, it, and it's something that I, I don't do continuously. And certainly in those years where, those decades where I was working, you know, full time or whatever, it was always a side issue. And even even the sec side of that, uh, it, it depends on the cir- circumstance. It depends if I'm in the mood to trade or whatever. So I'll, there will be periods where I'll trade. There will be periods where I don't trade. And, and strictly, it's more of a hobby to me than uh, than anything else. And and if I start not doing well in my trading, I'll stop trading. And then, you know, a few months later, I said, oh, yeah, maybe I'll feel like trading again. You know, so, so one day, the one day, decide oh, it feels right again. So uh, that's that that's it so like again it's it's a it's a it's a hobby nothing not a not a not a full-time endeavor Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. But but you've clearly picked up some things from uh, from some of the traders you you've interviewed, yeah. <laughs> which, which raises which raises the question: um, How different is it this time? You know, there's there's been people scoffing um, at, at the markets. For, I don't know for since oh eight oh nine. I've I've continuously read about people who are pushing back against the Fed and ZERP and QE and and pretty much. But for the COVID pandemic, the market's gone mostly up over that Great period. How, how do you how do you respond to people who tell you, "Hey, this is a bubble; you can't trade it. The Fed has ruined everything." W- what's the standard response to that? Well, apparently, it's not the case because there are people <laughs> trading very effectively, and not necessarily not necessarily because they're long biased. Uh, in many cases, you know, a lot of these traders in the book uh, are are in equity traders at all, so. So their their success is not coming from the market, and even when they're equity traders, they they could be both on the long short side. So I think those who, traders who are in this book, equity traders are are on both sides of the market. So I would say it has nothing to do with the market being in a bull market. Being successful in trading is is, is more you know a matter of the uh, the individual methodology. And, and as far as the, the the whole premise about the well, at some point they're going to be right, but you, you find, or I find, that traders who are successful, the, the forecasting is not the is not the thing. It, it, they may think a market's going to act in a certain way. They may have plans to 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 act, you know, to respond to that, and they'll and they'll be out quickly if they're wrong. You know, the best quote here is uh, is Peter Graham, and and it is the uh, I, I I like his quote so much that I think I use it the as the title of the uh, of his chapter, which is strong opinions weekly held. So he puts on a trade. He has a strong opinion, but if he goes in, you know, if the, in his words or paraphrasing, if the market puts his hand in his pocket, he's out. So uh, you can have a strong opinion, but you have to be very, like Peter says, you know, you have to hold it weekly. And if if, if you're not right, you have to you have to admit you're wrong and just get out of the way. 
So uh, people who have this premise that the market's going to do this or the forecasting it's going to do that, that's usually not only not helpful, but it's usually counterproductive. I'm with you on that completely. Um, let me let me ask you uh, an interesting thing. The, the book is really divided into two halves. The first part is futures trading. The second part is stock trading, stock traders. And then you have rules and there's an appendix and there's additional stuff. But I can't help but notice, given how crazy NFTs and crypto and Bitcoin and all that stuff has gone, there's not a lot of uh, there's not a whole lot of mention of of crypto trading in this. What are your thoughts on this space? It's pretty clear. Some people have made hundreds of millions, if not billions. I think the um, the Winklevise funds is now up to something like two billion dollars uh, from what they rolled over a few hundred million in in Facebook stock. What what is your thoughts on that space and and how people might be trading it? Yeah, well, for, first of all, there is one Jeff Newman. You know, is the one trader who did mention who did trade crypto, and it's because it fits into the way he trades markets. Is he's looking just for being early to anticipate when something's going to happen, when the market's just getting interest in something. So crypto was just another thing; it had nothing to do with crypto itself. It was just fit, it was like a new product in, in a way. Right. So, um, so it, it did come up in that chapter. You know, my own feeling. I don't. You know, I'm kind of old school. I always felt uncomfortable. My my initial inclination was to say the. the so it looks like you know, it looks like a bubble, and I, I you know, uh, the 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 thing that, but I've, I've avoided it uh, by and large. I don't. Uh, on one hand, I kind of it looks bubble-like in in a lot of ways, but there is a the one thing I guess that's kept me away is there that there. That's kind of odd. But for something like Bitcoin, you know, the main something like a Bitcoin, like Bitcoin, which is the main one. There is actually uh, there is an app. There's two things that that counter that argument. One. There's actually a use for it, and the use is not the use is not what people say. It's not an alternative currency. No reasonable alternative currency will swing 25 percent right. in a short period of time. It's not usable as, a, as in that way. But what it is useful for is actually quite. It's an nefarious usage, but the market doesn't care. You know, it, it's you know like ransomware or, or uh, <laughs> other th- things of that nature, black market. So there is a there is a use for it, right? So that it's not like some other Things like uh, like internet companies that started out losing money and never made a dime, and just the longer they were in business, the more money they lost. There's no way they could do it. So that's an example of a bubble where there was just no no rationale whatsoever. Here is a rationale. It's not a particularly attractive rationale, but it's a rationale. And, and if this is used, the market will put a value on it. And then the other thing is a scarcity. So like Bitcoin, there could be only a certain number of Bitcoin. So so that's a you know defined maximum number. So there are countervailing arguments. And, and that's what, if it wasn't for those two things, I think I would have been inclined to, to, to you know, to, to look at it as a bubble. Uh, but certain other things like Dogecoin, which starts as a joke and then goes, you know, goes up, you know, God knows how many percent. I think a lot of those Me Too coins over time will eventually, my own feeling probably go, go, to, go to nothing. Um, and, you know, so I think there are certainly elements of, of of a bubble bubble in this whole sphere, there might be some you know some that survive and maybe go much higher. I don't know, but uh, not my expertise. It's just uh, kind of my thoughts. Huh. Very very interesting. Um, so, what would you need to see from one of these traders before you handed over your capital to them to manage for you? 
And really, this Go is on. a broad this is a broad question. It's not so much literal as what do you need to see before you write a check, but you've witnessed a ton of different um, uh, traders and fund managers. I think your perspective would be helpful for those people who wrestle with what do I need to do in order to feel comfortable giving money to a third party to manage for me? Yeah, well, a few points. First of all, I would focus more on return to risk rather than just return because you do have managers out there that that will put up spectacular returns, but they also have spectacular losses. And uh, the truth of the matter is, even if it over the long run they turn out okay, but if you have these giant drawdowns, the reality is investors don't survive. They they just bail out. So you may look at it with the benefit of hindsight, the track record that look has a good return and with a lot of volatility, and you said, oh, well, it all works out fine. Yeah, it works out fine because you're looking with hindsight. But believe me, if you go in fresh and you have that type of uh, track record, you, you're going to blow out somewhere in the middle, or, or 95% plus of investors will. So I think it's important to look at the return risk, not just not just the return. Uh, another element is you want to have a sense that there's some explanation of why that person has done particularly well, that that more, there would be a reason to expect it to continue. And that's not always easy to do, but that's, I think, important. And and I guess another, the last comment I was making, it's very difficult, like the old cliche, and it's not a cliche for no reason. It's a past performance is not a, is no guarantee of future performance. So you could do everything right, and the person could still end up uh, not doing well. And there is a there is a regression to the mean problem here because when you pick people who've done very well, it's hard for them to continue at that extreme. And there's, it's almost natural for to have a regression to the mean. Uh, and uh, so I would expect that. I mean, even if you pick people who've done extremely well, I would not. I would it'd be unrealistic to expect them to continue to do as well in the future. Uh, uh, you have to be comfortable saying, well, even if they did great this much, it's still fine. Hmm. Really, really intriguing. Um, I, we mentioned Peter Grant has been a, around for quite a while, but it, it comes back to just about everybody else in the book are, are on the younger side. There are a few people who have been around for, for a decade or two. Uh, do you get the sense that trading is a, is a young person's game? Uh, how, how does... Uh, this new crop of traders make you feel about the previous traders you looked at uh, in the past couple of books? I guess you're right on that. I didn't think about it, but I guess uh, with a couple of exceptions, they're they're younger as a group. I I did uh, I, I I do try to get people who have at least a decade or longer of trading, and I think Barge was the one exception I made. At the time I interviewed him, he only had about eight years, but I thought it was so exceptional that it, it merited being in there. Um, so even though they're young, they still have. Yeah, I wouldn't take anybody who has like a three, four year record or something like that. So uh, they still have a decade plus in almost all cases. The fact that I, I you know, it just ended up being maybe because I was looking at individual traders, uh, it just turned out that those that crop of traders ended up being on the. On the younger side, there's probably maybe more interest now among young people in trading than than previously. Maybe that's another bias. It it just uh, it just just ended up. To, uh, it it wasn't. Uh, I don't know if that's 
if that's representative of, of traders as a whole, it's too sm- certainly far too small of a sample. And uh, and there, there are only about a, there's less than a dozen bo- uh, traders, and and a couple of them have been around for quite a while. So uh, even there, it's not uh, not exclusively young. Huh. Re- really, kind of uh, kind of interesting. Let's stick with the current environment. Um, buy the dip has really that mentality has really taken hold. Uh, we saw the 34% pandemic 2020 sell-off, and what was that? Barely five or six weeks, and and yep. the market, uh, I think it bottomed end of March, and the market had recovered by August. Uh, what what does this mean? Is is this suggest we're late in the cycle, or hey, if it's been working for the past ten years, people are going to keep doing till it doing it till it stops? How how do you uh, how do you look at this? See, okay, so that almost approaches forecasting. So uh, <laughs> again, something that's not a matter of advice, but I will say this: I I did a book uh, seven eight years ago called Market Sense and Nonsense, and yep. in one of the chapters in that book, I basically well, and so I, in there I try to dispel some of these, some of the myths and misconceptions and, and mistakes people make in markets. And one of them was this idea of in, of investing when things are, you know, when things have been good. And I, I did an analysis, actually going back, you know, back in the 1850s in terms of data, uh, uh, and just show that, and I took five-year periods, 10, 15, 20, and I showed what happened in the next five, 10, 15, 20, depending on, on the previous and, and not surprisingly to me, at least, is, you know, when you invested when, there, when the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years were relatively poor, you did extremely well, and vice versa, if you invested after really well. So the fact that now we've had a, you know, pretty much, as you say, we've had minor exceptions here and there, we've had a, a running bull market since 2008, it's getting a bit old. And so I would say probability-wise now, uh, investing over the next five, ten years, uh, fifteen years has become at the at this point is become much less attractive. Just some straight statistics and numbers, and and that's just a reality. It's not a forecast. So I just put to put that in perspective. And my advice, especially when I speak to younger people, always is putting part of your money long term into the market is a good idea. But try to, but it's best to do it when everybody hates the market. It's much less attractive when you've been on a long, long, long bull market like we are now. So yeah, I don't know, it could, it, could end, it could end next week, it could end two years from now, I don't know. But I would just say the probabilities now are much less favorably skewed than they would have been, you know, <laughs> much earlier on. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So you're, you're touching on one of my pet peeves, and, and so let's talk about this. You know, when we look at these long-term bull markets following World War II, it was 46 to about 66, um, following the in, in inflation and, and oil embargo in the 60s and 70s, the new bull market started in 82 and ran to 2000. 
But in, in historically, when we look at these bull markets, we don't date them to the bottom of the prior low. We, we date them to when the market breaks out from that prior long trading range. So the Dow kissed 1,066. It didn't get over and on a permanent basis till 82. We, we don't date mm -hmm. that bull market to 1974 bear market lows. Why is everybody so fixated on March 09? That's the low of arguably a 13-year-long secular bear market that started in March 2000 and ended in March 2013 when markets got over and above that trading range. Does that make any difference to how you look at markets? Am I being a little pedantic here? Or, you know, everybody just seems so hyper-focused on March 09. Well, it has to do with uh, you know the point I was just making before is is what the prior record was. So, uh, you know, from from that point forward, twelve, thirteen years now. So you have a long period of of favorable returns, and and that's the type of statistic when I'm looking at what the market do in the past ten or fifteen or twenty years. That's the type of statistic that that would be relevant. That's a type of statistic that's going to look strong. It's not the fact just that it was the bottom. It just happens to be that for a long period of time, the market has had very, very above average returns. Huh. Qu quite interesting. And then the curveball question I have to ask you before we get to our favorite questions is simply, are we going to see yet another Market Wizards book after this? Are there still more traders to be uncovered? Yeah, well, there's certainly more traders to be uncovered. Uh, but that not necessarily correlated with another market wizards book. So um, whenever I finish one of these, I don't anticipate there'll, there'll be another <laughs> one. And so far, there always has been another one. Um, I just did one. I and typically, no, with the exception of the second book, which which I did a few years after the first one, was because the first one was was such a big hit, and uh, I still had a number, quite a number of trainers I hadn't gotten to. So uh, I did those only three years apart. But other than that, the books have been spaced seven or ten years apart. And I don't anticipate doing one anywhere in the foreseeable future. And I kind of am skeptical if I'll do another one. But uh, like I said, I haven't been right about that in the past, so I won't make that an absolute prediction. Never say never. All right, so, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all our guests. Starting with, tell us what you're streaming these days. Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime shows or whatever podcast you're listening to, what's keeping you entertained during the pandemic? Sure. Uh, so, so really strong recommendation here for a UK program called Clarkson's Farm, which I oh, so was good. like found enormously entertaining. Uh, it's about Jeremy Clarkson, who the, during the COVID year he owns farm, you know, it's a big farm in the UK, uh, in the UK, and he decides, well, why not farm himself? So. The, the reason I like it, one, he has just a great sense of humor, and it underlies the whole show. And second, it gives you an appreciation of just how darn difficult farming is. So the combination of that, I, I you know, made that a great series. And then there's one I just watched recently, which is which is of a uh, one of these uh, eight series type of single story things, of maybe call it a thriller or whatever. Um, but really well done, holds consistently way above average of the typical one, and it's called clickbait. So I, I would recommend that. And Oh, and recently, I this is decades old probably, but I finally got around to watching Scorsese's uh, documentary on, on Dylan. It's like three and a half hours long, 
called No Direction Home. And if if you're a fan of an early Dylan, it's, it's a high recommendation. Uh, and uh, one last one on the podcast. I've got a new favorite podcast over the last couple of years, and it's called Cautionary Tales. And it's by uh, Tim Tim Hartford, who goes by the name of the sure. undercover economist. Uh-huh. It's a phenomenal, a phenomenally well done show. Uh, he, he's so so many interesting things he, he pulls up. Uh, just uh, just not only highly entertaining, but if you're interested in in, um, in behavioral economics, it really uh, it's not it's not uh, educational in that way, but it comes out of the story, so to speak. And uh, he does a great job in, in doing the narrative. So, um, like I say, highly recommended cautionary tales. Cautionary tales, um, huh. yeah, you know. Re- really interesting. Uh, tell us about some of your mentors who helped shape your career uh, over time. There really is only one mentor in my case, and he was a close friend. Um, unfortunately, he died a few years, a number of years ago, named Steve Kronowitz. Um, and and you won't find anything about Steve because he never wrote anything. Uh, yeah, but Steve, um, he, when I back in the day when I was a director of research, he was uh, he was an analyst who worked for me, and he he was the technical analyst. All the other analysts were fundamental analysts, and I and Steve and I shared this large office space, and so we were friends as well. But I noticed that all the analysts they they, they were right, they were wrong, you know, lucky to break even, uh, you know, over the total. But Steve was the only one who was right more than wrong. And this is back in the day, coming out of uh, graduate school for an economics degree, I was very very skeptical of of, of technical analysis, but I, I was open and open minded enough to talk to him about it. And he, Okay, tell me what you do, and and I, through him, I, first I I understood why the, the premise of why technical analysis can work, and to put it simply, it's that when you think about it, everything that happens in the market, everything that's known about the market, every trade that's done in the market shows up in price. You can't hide it, right? So, or even insider thing, it shows up in price. So there's a logic to it. There's a reason why price could be meaningful as a reflection of everything that's known about the market. So it's not black mumbo-jumbo. It, it, it's, it has a rationale. So that, that was one thing that I understood and learned from him. And then he showed me just basic, you know, chart analysis and uh, more appreciative risk management. So he really, he was the one who kind of was an influence for me to switch over from fundamental to technical. That was where I kind of transitioned from losing to being that profitable uh, and I would consider him basically um, my mentor. Hmm. Let's talk about books. What are some of your favorites, and, and what are you reading lately? Okay, ironically, uh, top of my list here is, a, and you had uh, Channel Dini on uh, 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 not that long. I listened to a nice podcast with him, uh, Influence, the book Influence. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say that Influence is not just a recommended book. I would say it is a a great book, a classic. Um, I would say, you know, and, and I've read a number of behavioral economics books, and his is more of a psychology, but there's probably as much information in that book about useful information about human behavior as any volume I can think of. So um, if you have any interest in psychology or human behavior, strong recommendation on influence. Um, then I've read two books more of an entertaining side recently, which I, which are, one is phenomenal, Called in the Kingdom of Ice, which is about the uh, the first ex- U.S. expedition in the 19th century to, to find the North Pole, 
by boat uh, where they didn't realize that you couldn't do that, <laughs> and they got trapped you know, trapped in the ice. And it's an incredible narrative. Uh, it's a true story. Um, it, it is just a phenomenal read. It's literally one of the best books I've ever read. It's called In the Kingdom of Ice. And uh, kind of another similar historic adventure that I read recently, which I would recommend, is called The River of Doubt, which is about Teddy Roosevelt after he loses his bid for a third term as president, uh, actually goes off and is co- co- uh, co-heads an expedition to explore a previously uh, un- uncharted uh, major river in the Amazon. And it's, a, you know, again, a true story. And kind of, in the, the, uh, you read that, it's amazing the grit uh, of, that, of that man and, uh, and you know, what, the risks he took. And, uh, and that whole story is a pretty incredible one as well. It, something I knew nothing about, and it's pretty amazing that it's true. Hmm. So those are some good book recommendations. I literally gave a copy of Influence to my nephew, who's in his early 20s and working as a banker, yesterday. So um, today is, uh, I'm sorry, Tuesday, I gave that to him. He was he was over for the holidays. And I. Uh, it's just a great book to, to share yeah. with young people. The In the Kingdom of Ice looks fascinating. I'm going to pick that up. Have you ever yeah, you'll, read? You'll enjoy it. You'll enjoy it. It's a great read. Just a great read. Have you ever read Endurance about Shackleton's yeah, voyage? Yeah, yeah, and, and it's funny you say that because people ask me what my favorite book is, and Endurance is my favorite book. That's uh, just unbelievable. It's an unbelievable book. It's it's just uh, there's it is nothing like it. Yeah, but you know this is the thing in the kingdom in the kingdom of the ice is the first book I've read that stands can stand at the exact same level as really Lincoln. that's Endurance. amazing. It's that good. It's that good. Wow, I'm in. Count, count me in for that. <laughs> um, what sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career as a trader? Well, sort of. If you're interested in a career as a trader, um, there's, well, one, I think of a quote that's the title of one of the chapters in this latest book, which is, don't quit your day job. <laughs> so uh, on the other hand, somebody like Jeffrey Newman went out of graduated college, and went straight to trading and became enormously successful. So there are exceptions, but I, I think that's more of the long shot. And uh, people's perception of what it, how difficult it is to succeed as a trader are misplaced. And it's particularly difficult if you don't have a real stake in, you know, to, to fall back on. If you've got to pay your rent or something like that, and you're you're depending on making money. That's that's a real big disadvantage. So, so one piece of advice I would say is is don't really get serious about try a trading career until you have enough money to be comfortable, take care of your basic expenses, and and be able to give it a chance. Uh, uh, otherwise, it's difficult enough, and you're just putting the odds too much against you by trying to do it. At the same time, you have monetary uh, responsibilities that can't be met unless you're making money. And our final question, what do you know about the world of trading today that you wish you knew 30 or 40 years ago when you were first getting started in this field? Yeah, a couple, well, most important thing probably is that of everything, risk management is, is the most important thing. And that was certainly something I had, didn't understand at all. It's not an add-on. It's not something that you'll get to. It's if you don't have some sort of, and it doesn't have to be difficult, doesn't have to be complex, but if you don't have rigorous risk management, 
the odds of succeeding are very low. So that's something I, I fully, that's burnt into my bones at this point, but I didn't understand it all when I got in. And I guess the other thing is, is that no matter how good you do at any point in time, don't get complacent. The market always has a way of surprising you. So uh, I've kind of learned at this point, and if I'm doing really well, I'm probably going to have a lousy period coming up. But, uh, you know, you, you got to learn to not assume that you've discovered it, because you never do. Uh, it's always an ongoing thing. And, and like I say, the market will always surprise you. Huh. Quite, quite fascinating. Uh, Jack, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Jack Schwager, author of uh, about eight books, most recently, Unknown Market Wizards, the best traders you've never heard of. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of our previous almost 400 prior discussions. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, uh, wherever you pick up your favorite podcast from. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps these conversations come together so nicely each week. Charlie Vollmer and Tim Harrow uh, are my audio engineers because this particular podcast required two engineers. Paris Wald is my producer. Uh, Tika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.